0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. For this bonus episode of the podcast, I've had the chance to talk with Jacob Bloomfield, author of the recently published book Drag, A British History. A little left field, you might think, but Jacob's research gives us a fascinating insight into the more recent history of this particular theatrical style, and, as you will hear, some broader social history, and the story of the final demise of theatre censorship in the UK. I spoke to Jacob over Zoom and began by asking him to introduce himself.
1: My name is Jacob Bloomfield. I'm a Zuckum's College postdoctoral fellow at the University of Konstanz uh, here in southwest Germany, and I'm also an honorary research fellow at the University of Kent.
0: So it seemed to me that, that a, a new study of, of drag in theatre is really very timely because of uh, things like RuPaul's Drag Race on the television, Mrs. Brown's Boys for everyone mm-hmm. in the UK uh, yeah. who might have seen that. And in fact, I've just been to see the 40th anniversary production of La Cage aux Folles uh, in London this summer. I heard that's
1: out there. Yeah. Very uh, cool. Yes,
0: it- it's a very good production. But of course, drag goes back a, a long way from that we, we could take it right back to the Elizabethan prohibitions of, of women on stage. There's certainly a strong uh, 17th century tradition. And then the Victorian Music Hall also has a tradition. I can remember seeing Charlie's aunt myself uh, in my uh-huh. younger years, and mm-hmm. even Lady Bracknell in the importance of being earnest being played by a man on, on several uh, well known occasions. Yeah. Uh, but your book although it does cover some of that older history it, it really concentrates on the century from about the 1870s mm-hmm. when a lot of drag made that transition from the Victorian music hall into the theatre itself and one of those characters uh, and one of the things i loved about the book was the all the characters the performers who turn up in it as characters in themselves and I thought maybe uh, to give people a flavour of the book, we might talk about Arthur Lucan and his female persona, Old Mother Riley, because he really made the crossover from the music hall to the theatre and into film as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Uh, well, uh, he actually he had a whole uh, media empire based on his Old Mother Riley character. So Arthur Lucan Um, His heyday was uh, the interwar period uh, through the Second World War and then um, into the post-Second World War period. He died in 1954, uh, I believe, um, and he actually died, uh, you know, quite fittingly uh, in the clothes and makeup of Old Mother Riley as he was about to, uh, as he was waiting in the wings about to go on stage so i sort of open with that uh dramatic moment and i say uh it was fitting because you know early in his career he played uh he did play you know male characters um but then he sort of found his groove particularly in the interwar period playing this character old mother riley she wasn't always called old mother riley um but she came to be called old mother riley um and uh from from the time he found that character he was very committed to the old mother riley character uh he would even show up to uh the old mother riley radio show uh in the costume of old mother riley with the script memorized um and uh he didn't really have um as i said once he found this character he didn't really have a persona outside of her Um, you know for instance he did a film with Bela Lugosi um, which some of your listeners might know and some of your listeners might be surprised to know but uh, Bela Lugosi was touring Britain with a kind of ill-fated production of Dracula uh, late in his career and while he was in Britain um, the uh, some producers caught wind of this and uh, convinced him to appear in what would be the last Old Mother Riley film. Um, And uh, by all all accounts, uh, Arthur Lucan sort of freaked out Bela Lugosi by, you know, greeting him as Old Mother Riley and not really, uh, you know, Bela Lugosi didn't really get to meet Arthur Lucan. He only met Old Mother Riley. Going back a little bit, um, Arthur Lucan... Uh, performed with his daughter, uh with, sorry, with his wife, Kitty McShane. Uh, and Kitty McShane played Old Mother Riley's daughter in the act. Uh, and that was probably the least weird thing about their relationship. Um uh they had a very tempestuous relationship. Uh Kitty McShane sort of saw Arthur as uh, her meal ticket. Um, and uh, you know, there were times where he would try to go solo and she would prevent that sometimes by force um and uh even even after their professional partnership had ended by the time um uh of arthur lucan's last film uh he she was still controlling the purse so she would sort of appear and uh, give uh, Arthur his pittance for the week or the month or whatever it was, uh, sort of embarrassing him in front of the cast and crew. Um, And uh, Bale Lugosi, I guess, was privy to that. But for the most part, he only met uh, Old Mother Riley. He didn't meet Arthur Lucan. And uh, Arthur Lucan, this whole media empire uh, during the 1930s and uh, particularly the 1940s, uh, Lucan and McShane were some of the uh, top grossing stars in Britain. They had, uh, you know, constant touring stage productions. Um, they had a, fi- a film series. They had, as I said, a radio show, gramophone records. It really was a media empire based on this character and uh, based on this game character. And what I think is kind of interesting is that. Um, You know, we often see the dame as this sort of clown type figure, um, you know, associated with slapstick comedy and, you know, not being a very kind of deep character. But um, people like Arthur Lucan and before him, Dan Leno really took a kind of Stanislavski-esque approach to the character. You know, they uh, injected pathos into... The stories to give some sort of, um, you know, emotional ups and downs. So the comedy was tempered with pathos and you still see that, for instance, in Mrs. Brown's Boys and, um, you know, Old Mother Riley has a sort of backstory, which you uh, get in bits and pieces throughout uh, the stage and screen appearances. Um, So, uh, you know, you do have dames that are... uh, you know, kind of slapstick and one dimensional, but um, you also have dames, particularly from, you know, when Dan Leno is crafting his Drury Lane dame characters uh, in the turn of the century. Uh, you have actors that really craft a multi dimensional dame character, and Arthur Lucan is uh, among those uh, entertainers.
0: Yeah, it's a great point, isn't it, to remember that this wasn't just about comedy and musical entertainment. They Mm -hmm. they were serious performers uh, who took their work very seriously. And uh, as you say, Arthur Lucan was obviously immensely successful. I believe the films were some of the biggest grossing films of the years when they were released at the time.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, Arthur Lucan uh, or the Old Mother Eileen character was mostly associated with working-class audiences uh, in the provinces and industrial areas, for instance. um, It wasn't until, I think it was the 10th film in the series. Um, uh, I believe it was Old Mother Riley's new venture. I might be wrong on that, but it wasn't until around the 10th film in the series that um, they got a West End release for an Old Mother Riley film. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sort of strange to think about Right uh, today when, you know, a film is released and it's in Odeon cinemas or, you know, cinema chains everywhere for the most part, unless it's kind of an indie film. But, um, you know, we have to remember that back in the uh, interwar period and uh, Second World War period and post Second World War period, um, you know, popular culture was more siloed. So uh you could have people who would be hugely popular with for instance the working classes and people in industrial areas in the provinces but people in the west end would have you know possibly not heard of them or not engaged with them um so uh Arthur Lucan uh was uh, associated with these um with working class with the working classes and uh, as i said the provinces industrial areas and uh his um his work really spoke to their concerns and again going to this um this issue of you know his dame wasn't just a one-dimensional character there was quite a lot going on there um you know you have films like for instance uh old mother riley mp where old mother riley is a uh, running against not only her former boss, but also he's also a landlord. So he's doubly an enemy of the working class. So she's running against uh, her former boss and landlord, um, to be, uh, to represent the local constituency as an MP. And she's running on a platform of universal employment, for instance, um, so, uh, you know, there is some there are some serious uh, matters uh, and there are there is some content which seriously speaks to working class concerns in the old Mother Riley uh, stage and screen and radio and gramophone appearances.
0: Yeah, that's some some serious social commentary there. And yeah. I, I did see that uh, there are at least part or uh, I think in some cases, the entire films on YouTube these days, if anyone's interested in, in having a look at. Uh, how they sounded and, and what they looked like uh, from the time.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate, actually, um, yeah, because there should be more on YouTube uh, of uh, Arthur Lucan uh, slash Old Mother Riley. Um, you know, every, most people, if not everyone involved with these films, is dead by now. And so I feel like uh, maybe <laughs> this is a... a, a too too heavy uh an anti-capitalist message at least as it pertains to old mother riley but i feel like it's unfair that the current rights holders are holding back people from watching um old mother riley's screen and radio appearances um you know i had to go to the bfi archives to watch um a lot of these Mm -hmm. films so there and there you can get them on dvd as well um but uh i haven't I don't think there's a set out that really has all the old mother Riley films. And that's uh, a shame. And I, uh, if uh, there's any political message to be taken from this interview, it's that, you know, we should free old mother Riley. Um, Cause um, yeah, it's unfortunate. You obviously, and you know, particularly from the thirties through the 1950s, uh, Arthur Lucan's kind of heyday, he was quite famous. And then, uh he was kind of he kind of became famous with the generation afterwards mm-hmm. because uh his films were shown at children's matinees in cinemas from the 1950s through about the 70s they were kind of a mainstay of children's matinees but nice. um people who were born after that um you know haven't really engaged with old mother Riley as much and i think that's a shame
0: Uh, You mentioned that he died uh, in the wings, uh, waiting to go on, actually, Mm -hmm. dressed. uh, So he remained relatively popular up to his final demise.
1: He had a little bit of a sad ending, not just because he died suddenly, but... um he had some tax issues i even found an article that said from the 1970s that said arthur lukin's ghosts uh, haunts the tax office <laughs> uh because <laughs> as a retaliation for hm revenue going after him so there's a i think there's at least a one act play there now and somebody actually did write a uh, there there was also a play written um about uh the it was kind of a fictionalized account of Arthur Lucan and Bela Lugosi's relationship. Oh, yeah. I think that came out about 10 years ago. So that's interesting. Um, so people are re-engaging with Arthur Lucan. Um, but yeah, so he had lots of tax issues by the end. He had a very complex and tempestuous relationship with Kitty McShane, of course, and that continued to uh, bother him. Um, and you can see um there's a there was a TV movie made in the 80s with uh, Maureen Littman as uh, Kitty McShane um, called On Your Way Riley so you can see um, I think that's on YouTube actually so if you want to watch um, an account of the Lucan and McShane relationship you can watch that uh, as well Um, but but, yeah so he was a little bit on the he was sort of on the decline by the time he died um, but I mean variety theater (laughs) was uh, on the decline during that time so it might not have been completely uh, his fault this was when you know variety theater was hurting and theater started to uh, recruit uh, you know crooners to bring in the youth market etc so it's hard to tell whether you know it was just because people thought old mother Riley was old hat or people just thought that sort of Music hall and variety mm. type and en- light entertainment had had its day. But, um, uh, but yeah, he was still popular. Um, and uh, as I said, he had a kind of career revival, posthumous revival with these uh, children's matinees. So um, he has this kind of posthumous reputation as a children's entertainer, um, partially because of the, his popularity at uh, children's cinema matinees. Right. And in some ways that true, that's, true, but basically it's because you know to be a popular performer in the 1930s through the 1950s you had to appeal to you know people of all ages. Um, so he was a children's entertainer in some sense, but he was a lot more than that and as I said, you know, a very uh thoughtful um and talented entertainer in his own right, you really injected uh, co- lots of complexity into, into you know, what's kind of superficially a slapstick game role.
0: That era of popularity crosses over with um, another type of drag that you talk about uh, quite extensively in the book, which is the review show that really came out of the World War II concert party um, concept. And... It's it's uh, interesting, I think we have this image of uh, Britain in the 1950s as being a rather dull and uh, monochrome sort of place, which is probably true, um, yet we have uh, drag review going on to immense popularity, which just seems uh, a bit counterintuitive, um, but nevertheless true, I think.
1: The whole book is about that sort of, you know, uh, trying to... Because it's interesting, there's this stereotype On the one hand, that, you know, nothing makes British people laugh more than a guy in a dress. But then on the other hand, there's this popular idea that drag is and has always been taboo. And so I'm Mm -hmm. sort of bringing back that, uh, the former stereotype and also trying to inject it with some academic rigor, um, But yeah, so anyway, the uh, yeah, so these ex-servicemen's drag reviews, as I call them, uh, the story sort of starts um, uh, in the First World War. uh, You have uh, servicemen performing um, for fellow servicemen, uh, and, you know, these uh, entertainments often involve drag, all sorts of drag not just you know the stereotype of oh they you know tried to be sexy women because there were no women available. there was kind of more maternal drag, sexy drag you could have you know so they were performing all kind of all different types of femininity. Um, but there is a troupe called La Rouge et Noir. they're named after the colors of the first army, which is where they sprang from. And uh, La Rouge et Noir, with the backing of the War Office and General uh, Henry Horn, um, um, start to do these shows, these drag shows, all over Britain. Um, and they're sort of billed as, you know, uh, this is a First World War concert party brought to the British public, and it's kind of an informative and entertaining way uh, uh, for the public to learn about, you know, what a First World War concert party was like, um, and so they toured all over Britain. Uh, they were hugely popular. Uh, they starred in the first—oh, sorry—they starred in one of the very first uh, motion picture talkies uh, produced in Britain. They weren't just side characters; they were the stars. This ex servicemans drag troupe. Uh, and like Arthur Lupin, they had, they made several films. So, uh, this troupe, Le Rouge et Noir, were very, very popular. And not only did people like them because they were ex-servicemen, but people liked them because, as the reviews I quote in the book show... People thought these guys were sexy, basically. Um, you know, views did mention, you know, admiration for the troops' wartime service, but they also gushed over in really kind of extreme terms, gushed over how beautiful they thought these people, uh, these performers were. So then, um, flash forward to the second, uh, the post-second world war period. Um, this becomes, the ex-servicemen's drag review phenomenon pops up again and it's even bigger than in the interwar period you have several shows with names like um soldiers and skirts. Uh, we were in the forces, uh forces showboat uh, you have shows like this. So this is like a, a popular culture phenomenon. Some of these shows, for instance soldiers and in skirts, is running for nearly a decade um and some of these shows they had multiple touring companies at once to keep up with the demand so they're huge and um like in the interwar period you know critics admire these uh performers for their wartime service but the main draw of the shows is the glamorous drag that's on show the main draw is uh being drawn in by these Performers, and if you're if you were what we would call a straight man today, being drawn in by the allure of these performers until they remove their wigs at the end. They're hugely these shows are hugely popular. They are touring all over Britain. There's uh, many of them um, going on all at once. Uh, Some of the uh, some of the most popular ex servicemen's drag reviews, as I said, are running for nearly a decade. Um, so it's a genuine pop culture phenomenon, This uh, the ex-servicemen's drag review subgenre.
0: And all of this time uh, that th- those are being performed, of course, they're battling with theatre censorship in the UK still at that point. So uh, ever since Elizabethan times, we've had censorship in the UK up to 1968 when it was finally abolished. And I, I guess, and you deal with it uh, quite extensively in the book, is this question of uh, the perception of drag being associated with some sort of degenerate behaviour and with homosexuality, particularly, which of course it was not the case. Uh, we would say now, I think you, you, I think you open the book with, uh, more or less with um, one of the theatre, the story of one of the theatre censors who is at a review and the way they. The employees of the Lord Chamberlain's office kind of had to sit there in the dark, making their notes about whether they the scripts that had been approved were being adhered to, and whether any of that was be how that was being interpreted by the audience at the time. They actually seem quite removed from the way they receive uh, performances, and they are sometimes surprised by the way the audiences react to performances.
1: Yeah, that's right. I opened with an anecdote about uh, an employee of the Lord Chamberlain's office at a drag show. Uh, The drag show is called We Are No Ladies, and it was staged in 1958. But the chapter that focuses on the Lord Chamberlain is sort of, you know, telling the story of the Lord Chamberlain's demise, as it were, through case studies involving drag. And that Mm. sort of connects to my wider argument that um, if I can make such a bold statement, you can tell the story of British popular culture in the 19th and 20th centuries through a story of drag. Um, And the fortunes of drag are tied to popular culture more widely, trends in theater and entertainment more widely um so uh you know i i often find that people talk about drag as though it's its own kind of distinct entity um that's like impervious to uh you know wider trends uh, in the arts and in theater and so i'm trying to sort of say no drag was actually at the forefront of a lot of trends in entertainment you know as i was saying when film uh, emerged drag was right there on film when radio first emerged drag was on radio even though we think of it as a like quite visual medium uh <laughs> you know when music hall was growing drag was in the music hall etc so um so the last full chapter uh, or at least before the conclusion i'm kind of trying to tell the story of the demise of the state regime of theater censorship um, through drag and talking about how drag reveals uh, the kind of fissures that were going on that led to the Lord Chamberlain's office having the power of uh, theater censorship taken away from it. Um, But uh, yeah, I think, you know, The attitude towards drag by the Lord Chamberlain's office that I discussed is, you know, might be surprising to some people, especially because you think of the theater censor and, you know, you would be forgiven for thinking that the theater censor would be the biggest prude (laughs) in the country. Right. But uh, what I found was um, the Lord Chamberlain's office was, uh, you know, had an ambivalent attitude leaning towards tolerance uh, with regard to drag. You know, I say in that opening anecdote, the employee at the Lord Chamberlain's office, ba- he basically says he thinks that uh, the performers are effeminate homosexual men and that the performance itself is totally lowbrow and he doesn't like the jokes. And also um, they the performers were going off uh, script um, but ultimately we should express tolerance for the show drag uh, or uh, female impersonation as the employee says uh, you know has a long tradition in Britain and you know they shouldn't get into the business of banning female impersonation from the stage and this is despite uh you know people writing in saying that the show is quote unquote homosexual filth um i think one one person says it's a a massive homosexual orgy in which the converted audience joins which is i think probably an overstatement you know i talk about the lord chamberlain also not because i think the lord chamberlain's office's views are representative of people uh, throughout britain uh because they aren't you know a lot of these uh employees were you know retired middle class military uh, former military officers mm-hmm. um but they did have probably the most power over drag performance um of any institution um in the country so i think they are important to talk about and then you also have uh through looking at the lord chamberlain you Also can get the views of, for instance, the police who the Lord Chamberlain's office sometimes sends to look in on performances. You get the points of view of people who write into the Lord Chamberlain's office complaining about certain plays. Uh, You have the points of view of the Department for Public Prosecutions, uh, which the Lord Chamberlain's office is dependent on uh, to prosecute um, productions that are... uh, Uh, going against theater censorship law. So you do get lots of views um, besides the Lord Chamberlain's office. And, you know, I think that sort of reveals uh, in part why the state uh, theater censorship system fell apart um, because the Lord Chamberlain was uh, reliant on all these other institutions who wouldn't always follow along with uh, the demands of the censor um and the censor's rules were often vague you know the lo- the the law just said that the lord chamberlain's office had the power to license uh plays that uh, were intended to be performed by the public the legislation didn't say homosexuality isn't allowed nudity isn't allowed mm-hmm. et cetera. the lord chamberlain's office was crafting its own rules and often these rules were vague and not uh, applied consistently and that you know often annoyed um the police and uh the courts in turn the lord chamberlain's office would get annoyed because they weren't the the courts and the police weren't doing what the lord chamberlain's office wanted um so you know i think i talk about how there's a bunch of different reasons why uh the state theater censorship system declined. Um, but that's one of them that kind of, uh, it required quite a lot of coordination and that coordination uh, fell apart. Um, and uh, and you also see how uh, through this, uh, you see how there wasn't kind of a consistent, ubiquitous view on what drag meant. Um, so the police might find a show uh, not as lewd as Lord Chamberlain's office found it, etc.
0: Yes, I, I thought that whole section of the book uh, really brought home the to me how uh, there was really very little enthusiasm for theatre censorship by the time it was. Falling apart, and, and and through those examples of the drag shows, I thought you really illustrated how how that falling apart happened, uh, as you've just described there. Really, and it's just I don't know. You 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 think back to it now; it's obviously it's a long time ago. The idea that you know a whole script was approved and then couldn't be deviated from in any way, in, in theory at least. Uh, is just unthinkable these days Um, and you know how could we possibly how could you possibly function like that uh, on any scale
1: well that was I mean another reason why it fell apart first of all you the Lord Chamberlain's office is part of the royal household so you have people thinking what the hell are these guys doing a lot of them you know weren't uh, it's not true that none of them had theatre experience some of them did have theatre experience and also the office sometimes relied on an advisory board of people in the theater industry but you know for instance uh, lord Cobald, if i recall correctly i think he was the last lord chamberlain to um to oversee the system of theater censorship and he had come from being the governor of the bank of england so um, I there was an article on the stage, for instance, uh, from the late 1960s saying, imagine if I, after, you know, decades as a theater critic, was hired by the Bank of England to oversee the country's finances. Um, so you have people thinking it's kind of ridiculous that these guys are the ones in charge of theater censorship it's ridiculous that you can read the script for cat on a hot tin roof by buying it and you can see the film of cat on a hot tin roof you can go to new york and see cat on a hot tin roof but you can't see cat on a hot tin roof on the british stage at least not in a public theater Uh, sometimes they would get away with having private theater clubs where you would pay a membership fee instead of a ticket uh, price and um, then you could maybe see Pat on the Hatton roof that way but you know there were just so many weird the system was just very eccentric and you had a a coalition of people you know on the left and kind of more libertarian minded people on the right who uh, thought that this system was untenable um, so, and by the end, even the Lord Chamberlain himself was saying, this is untenable. And so there was very little protest, um, when, uh, the, uh, the Lord Chamberlain finally lost his power to censor, uh, theater. Of course, they would say that they're not censoring anything. They would say that they approve or don't approve of scripts and then, if they don't approve of a script, then the uh, the producer or the or whoever, censors themselves and then sends it back. So the Lord Chamberlain's office might say, we're not the censor, uh, other people are doing the censoring, we're just licensing scripts or not licensing scripts.
0: Well, that really is a very fine distinction, and perhaps one that most of us would disagree with. My thanks to Jacob for his time and sharing some of the details of his research with us. Drag, A British History, is out now and available wherever you get your books from, published by the University of California Press in their Berkeley British Studies series. I've put a link in the show notes to the online sites where it's available, but do think about your local independent bookshop too. Next time, it's back to the Elizabethan stage, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail dot com, or via X, formerly known as Twitter, at T-H-O-E-T-P.